Have you ever noticed that when God tells a love story, that he, and he does that from Genesis to Revelation, it's, it's all one big love story. It, is, it seems impossible for the story to unfold without some kind of scandal taking place. It's, it's everywhere through the Bible. There's always a scandal in the love stories of God. It's not because God has a moral problem. God is perfect. God is amazing. The problem is with mankind. There's always a scandal in the story. Sin has mankind in so much brokenness that if God would wait for man to come around to pursue him, it would never happen. So God has to pursue us, and that's the, the beauty of the Christmas story. The darkness of sin is so deep that God can't really love us without himself breaking into our brokenness. God has to break into our brokenness and do something about our brokenness. And so today, in this series on the longing, we consider, first of all, the longing for love. The story of God's unrelenting love for us and our deep longing for that love begins in the book whose name means beginnings, the book of Genesis. The word Genesis means beginning. And this familiar passage, we, we quote this probably, I, I would say, more than any other verse in this church over the years. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, catch this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This passage of Scripture is really beyond our comprehension, but here we see the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the creation process. Let us, he said, plural, let us, the Godhead, make man in our image after our likeness. And so after five days of amazing creation, God creates man and woman. And he creates them in his image. And so he, he's doing something here. He puts a man and a woman together on the planet. He creates the woman out of the side of the man. And what God is doing, and what you might miss in a casual reading of the scripture, is that God wanted a big family. God want, he always wanted to have a big family. He didn't just want a man named Adam and, oh, give him a wife. He wanted a family. You see, God is love. Love is not something that God has. To say that God has love for us is to minimize what his love is really all about. God does not have love. God is love. The very essence of who God is, is love. And so love, in order to be love, the nature of love is that it cannot be static. Love cannot exist in a vacuum. There has to be an object of love, and that object of creation was mankind. Mankind was uniquely made in the image of God, uniquely made by, in the very image of the Creator. Now, 
A lot of people today, I, I read something the other day, and I, I know how surveys are. They're sometimes not very accurate, but they surveyed a bunch of American people, and I don't know how they picked them or whatever, but 60% of Americans said that the world, I'm talking about the planet Earth, and this is from the tree huggers and so on, um, the, the, the world would be better off without mankind. Think about that for a minute. The world would be better off without mankind. We're missing the whole idea of creation. God created the planet as a place for the man to be. Mankind is at the center of creation. He is to be the object of God's love. He was to turn this, this couple, Adam and Eve, were to turn into this massive family that would increase and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion over it. That was the purpose of God. And so Satan had to do everything in his power to seduce the human race away from their longing for love being met by their creator. Satan had to corrupt the seed of humanity, and sadly, the fall of Adam and Eve left mankind without the will to pursue the love of God. It's always corrupted by the propensity that we have to operate with what I call what we call a broken picker. Unless God moves in, in covenant love, our, our, our picker is broken, and we, we don't know what we're going to do. We're not going to choose the right thing. Mankind is incapable of finding love on his own. And so the history of the New Testament scriptures is the story of a fallen race that desperately longs for love, but is unable to find that love in the place where it can be found, and that is in relationship with the Creator. The fact is that if God doesn't pursue us in covenant love, there will be no fulfillment of God having his big family. And it's just not going to happen. The longing that comes from the fall has left us incapable of finding love on our own. It'll always be twisted. And as I mentioned, the old country, uh, the old country western song says, looking for love in all the wrong places. How many remember that? I looked that up yesterday. That was 1980. Can you believe it? That's how old you are. 1980, looking for love in all the wrong places. And that is exactly what people do. We look for love. But we don't, because of our fallen nature, we don't press in and find it in God. We try to find it in other things. And so it creates a separation from God. And so we have the, the result of the fall is this longing for love, the longing to be fulfilled in a love relationship with God. But I want to talk today about the scandal of that longing, we know there's a longing, but let's talk about the scandal of it for a little bit. You know, if the Old Testament tells us anything, it shouts to us about our inability to get it right. We have, as Henry Cloud calls, and I mentioned earlier, a broken picker. You know, we, we've heard that phrase, and he uses it in, in terms of human relationships where, where people pick someone to love as a partner, as a husband or wife or whatever, and they... And they and you probably know people like this, and we've all experienced some of it in ourselves, but they just keep picking the wrong person. They keep picking the wrong kind of person. And Henry Cloud says that's a broken picker. And we have a problem with our picker. When we're looking for love, to, to, for fulfillment in our lives of love, our, our picker is broken, and we can't seem to 
make the right choices. But this is, is systemic in the human race. When we choose loves in our lives, we don't choose well. And I want to remind us today that here in our Old Testament picture, that the first promise of redemption came right on the heels of the fall of Adam and Eve. God knew after the fall, Adam and Eve would not pursue him. And so God pursued them. And in Genesis 3, he declares the curses that are going to come upon the serpent and upon mankind after the fall because they looked for love in the wrong places. And in the midst of the brokenness came this promise, Genesis 3 and verse 15. God said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. The serpent, he said, would strike the heel of the woman's seed. That was Jesus' crucifixion. But the Messiah would crush the serpent's head. That was the death and resurrection of Jesus. And from here, the story of the Bible unfolds, and time and time again, we see this issue of the woman's war with the with I mean, with Satan. The offspring of the woman is warring with Satan. Satan had to do everything in his power to seduce the human race, and he worked on it. So, we come to uh, two scandals that I want to talk about briefly, each of them. Two scandals of love in the Old Testament. The first one is Abram, who later became Abraham. Genesis, we had the fall in chapter 3. Chapters 4 through 11 reveal the fallen race looking for love in all the wrong places. Chapter 11 reveals of Genesis what men considered the high point in their history. That's the story of the Tower of Babel. They built that tower to reach to the heavens because they were going to try to climb up to where God was, and that is really opposite the real story of the gospel because the gospel is not about us climbing up to where God is. The gospel is about God coming down and finding us. So the Tower of Babel was in defiance to the plan of God. They decided instead of scattering over the earth and multiplying, as God said in the original story, they got together and said, let's build a tower and let's make a name for ourselves. That's what man does outside of God. And so at the end of that chapter, we are introduced to a genealogy right after the Tower of Babel that leads us to Terah, a man named Terah, and his family. And this is what Genesis 12 says after that, that uh, genealogy. Genesis 12 begins, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to a land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. I hope you're hearing it. While we, we often focus on Abraham's wife Sarah being barren and that, that story, I want us to focus just for a couple of minutes on the heart of God in this story. What is going on in the heart of God? God wants a big family. God wanted to bless the nations. He wanted people to live with him in covenant love. And so he chooses Abraham and he says, I'm going to raise up a seed after you 
and I want to see the earth blessed by that seed. Well, we jump over years later to Genesis 15, and it says in verse 1, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what will you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens. Now hear God's heart here. Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Here's the big family heart of God once again. When he he flung the stars into the universe, he knew that man would never be able to count them. And he says to Abraham, look at the stars up here in the sky. And they were numerous. And he said, you can't count them. You really can't do it. You have no idea how many there are. And he's trying to say, This is the family that I want. I want a big family. That's God's heart in creation. You know, I think of this every every time I look at a clear, starry night. I consider looking at, I consider in the darkness when there's a bright sky, and we don't see a lot of those in the Pittsburgh area, do we? But um, we, we don't see a lot. But I've been places in the world, I'll never forget, in the jungles of Africa, standing, seeing probably three times more stars than I'd ever seen. It was so heavily clustered with stars. And every time I see the stars, I think of Abraham. And I think of the promise of God. This is what God wants. And I looked, I just, it just causes me to worship and say, God, this is your big family, this multitude. We can't count it. You want a big family. That is your heart toward us. And what I find so fascinating is I studied this one time, discovered that The light of the stars, now light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's fast. And so when you go out, if you would go out tonight and we would happen to have a clear sky and look up at the stars, the next time you see a star, think about this. At 186,000 miles per second, the light that you are seeing that is hitting your eyes from that star right now left that star when Abraham was on the earth. 4,000 years ago, that light that you're seeing left those stars. And I always think of Abraham, and I always think of the promise of God and how God wants a big family, and he said, I'm going to have a family. I'm going to have it. So Abraham finally had a son. He actually had two initially because when it comes to fallen man, there's always a scandal. It wasn't enough that God promised a son through the womb of Sarah Abraham got impatient, took matters into his own hands, impregnated Sarah's servant, Hagar, and produced a son named Ishmael, which caused a lot of brokenness all through the Scripture and down to this very day. But in time, the promised son came through Sarah's womb. He he was named Isaac, and he was the object of Abraham's love. God spoke to Abraham to take his son and sacrifice him then on Mount Moriah, when he was a young man, probably a teenager, go and sacrifice your son. And you know the story. As Abraham was about to plunge the knife into the heart of his son, God intervened and provided a sacrifice. 
Isaac was spared, and God was impressed. God was impressed with him. And this is what the Lord said to Abraham. He shouted this, just shouted this out of the sky. Genesis 22, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from, this, from heaven a second time and said, now this is God talking, I swear by myself, because God can't swear by anyone higher than himself. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your, your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make, here's God's heart again, your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. And he adds, the sand of the seashore. That's a biggie, isn't it? As numerous as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. Why is this so significant? It's significant because Abraham had connected to the love of the father's heart. And once again, um, we have to look past what's going on in Abraham and see the heart of Father God. He's going to have a big family. God was determined he's going to have a big family. And through that family, one would come who had been promised in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. And so 2,000 years after this, after Abraham, on that same mountain, Mount Moriah, God sacrificed his son. And he didn't withhold the knife this time. God sacrificed his son, Jesus, on the cross. And he became, as the apostle Paul teaches us, the firstborn among many sons or daughters. <laughs> the heart of God was going to be satisfied. God was going to get his big family. But alas, this family that... Abraham started physically, would have a long history of looking for love in all the wrong places. And while God married this nation of Israel, she would have a serious issue with marital unfaithfulness, with adultery. We call it spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness, whoredom, idolatry, etc. That's what the prophets called it when they spoke about the covenant-breaking nation of Israel. And so the second illustration that comes from the Old Testament comes from the prophet Hosea, which is one of the clearest in all of the Old Testament. Now, this story is raw, but I want to read the introduction to Hosea during one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Listen to Hosea 1, starting with verse 2. The first time God spoke to Hosea, he said, find a whore and marry her. Make this whore the mother of your children. And here's why. This whole country has become a whorehouse. Unfaithful to me, God. And Hosea did it. He picked Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam. She got pregnant and gave him a son. And God told him, name him Jezreel, because it won't be long now before I'll make the people of Israel pay for the massacre at Jezreel. I'm calling it quits on the kingdom of Israel. Payday is coming. I'm going to chop Israel's bows and arrows into kindling in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer got pregnant again. This time she had a daughter. God told Hosea, name this one no mercy. I'm fed up with Israel. 
I run out of mercy. Can you imagine being the neighbor to Hosea and they're yelling for the kids to come to dinner? No mercy! And every time that's yelled out, it's a reminder to Israel, payday is coming. There's going to be judgment coming. I've run out of forgiveness, says the Lord. Judah's another story. I'll continue having mercy on them. I'll save them. I'll be the God who saves them, not their armaments and armies, not their horsepower and manpower. And after Gomer had finally weaned, no mercy, she got pregnant again and had a son. And God said, name him nobody. Because you've become nobodies to me, and I, God, am a nobody to you. Now, Isaiah, can you imagine being called as a prophet and the first prophetic word that Hosea gets is, go marry a whore. That's the first word he heard from the Lord. Imagine, thanks for the prophetic career, God, you know, this, thanks for calling me. So the Lord is saying, Hosea, you are about to become an object lesson to an adulterous nation. And, and Hosea is going to feel in himself, in his own experience, the broken heart of the God of Israel, who's been nothing but faithful while she kept looking for love in the wrong places with her broken picker. Hosea is going to feel the heart of God as Israel, as Israel pursues other lovers. And so he names the child Jezreel because God was about to judge Israel for the atrocities in that city. The name is a reminder of the coming judgment. Then he names the second one. In the Hebrew, it's lo Ruhama. In the Hebrew, it means no more mercy. I'm done with the mercy. And then she conceives and gives birth to, in the Hebrew, lo ami, which means not my people. You are not my people anymore. And some people believe, some scholars believe that this child that was conceived, this third one, actually perhaps wasn't Hosea's child. It could have been a child of her whoredoms. We don't know for sure. But the adultery had begun. We don't have the details, but Gomer eventually left home to pursue her lovers. And the prophet's heart was broken as God's heart was broken for his bride, Israel. But the story doesn't end there because of the covenant love of the Father. And I want you to hear these words of hope that come right on the tail end of the prophecy that I just read to you about his children. This is what it says in Hosea 1.10. But down the road, the population of Israel is going to explode. And by the way, this is about a whole lot more than a physical nation. This is about the church. This is about the kingdom of God. The population of Israel is going to explode past counting, like sand on the ocean beaches. And in the very place they were once named nobody, they will be called God's somebody. Everybody in Judah and everyone in, Jeru in Israel will be assembled as one people. There's going to be one family, and they'll choose a single leader. Who do you think that was prophesying? Jesus. They'll choose a single leader. There'll be no stopping them. A great day in Jezreel. You see, God says down the road. God's plan, even in the darkness of Hosea's day, God's plan was still going, for a big family, was still going. And he tells his prophet that the family is going to explode and be as numerous as the sand on the seashores. There's hope that God introduces into this tragedy. Then God speaks again to Hosea, and he asks Hosea 
to do the unthinkable. His heart has been broken by his unfaithful wife. He's probably trying to get settled into life, taking care of the kids by himself while she's out with her whoredoms. Hosea 3, this is what the Lord said to me, he says. Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a half of barley. God sends Hosea to the slave auction. Sends him to the slave auction. And there he finds his estranged wife. And after all the pain she caused him, he buys her back. He pays the market price for a slave in that day. He is to love her again, to take her home and love her and care for her. This is a picture of the covenant love of the Father in his redemptive work. While our picker is broken, while we keep choosing our lovers apart from God, God is working. And he doesn't wait. I'm, I'm amazed at this story. He doesn't wait for her to come home. Because her adultery is too deep and her shame is too great. God knows his wife won't come back. So he goes to where she is and buys her back. That's the Christmas story. He comes to where we are as mankind in the brokenness of our sin. And he buys us back. I wish I could say that Israel's history changed after this, but it didn't really. The scandal continued, and God continued to involve himself in it because his love was strong. And he never gave up on his dream for a big family. And all of this spiritual idolatry, all of this idol worship didn't deter God's heart, his dream for a big family, from being fulfilled. After Hosea, 300 more years of history take us through the times of the prophets up to Malachi. 300 years they prophesied about the whoredoms of Israel, how they kept turning from their God, turning from the one who loved them. And then the prophets went quiet. 400 years of we call the silent years or the intertestamental period, 400 years between Malachi and Matthew of seeming silence. But the heart of the Father has not stopped longing for his family. And the heart of fallen mankind still yearns for love, but he keeps looking for it in the wrong places. Would the dream of God ever be fulfilled? Would the seed of the woman really come? Would God ever get the big family this heart longed for? Well, we come to the pages of the New Testament, and it's Matthew, right at the beginning of our New Testament. He didn't write first, but... It's in the order of our New Testament. Matthew breaks the silence, and in chapter 1, we see, of all things, another genealogy. And it's not the kind of passages that we want to memorize, probably. We just can barely get through them in a Bible reading program. But it's there because Matthew wants us to know that the dream of God was on track. So he begins with Abraham, and he traces this thing back um, down, down the line to Joseph. And by the way, 
the lineage that he gives us in Matthew 1 includes some really shady characters. It includes some adulterers and adulteresses. Uh, both men and women are in that genealogy of Jesus. And he traces all the way down the line to Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Luke's gospel runs the genealogy the other direction. Beginning at Joseph, he takes us all the way back to Adam, all the way to Adam, and he calls Adam the son of God, the original son there on earth. He's, Adam's the first one who carried the dream of Father God, the dream to be fruitful and multiply so the earth would be filled with a big family. And so with these genealogies, we know that something big is about to be introduced. And after reading all the scandals of the Old Testament, I just showed you two. After all those scandals that came in the Old Testament, we would hope that the Messianic story would not contain a scandal. I mean, could we have just one chapter in the love story that isn't riddled with scandal? Well, we already read it. Matthew 1 and verse 18. This is how Jesus God's anointed one was born. His mother Mary had promised Joseph to be his wife, but while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant. Come on. A, a love story of God. Mary, we got a scandal again. Mary's a virgin, but she becomes pregnant. But it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God, in the midst of a scandal once again, calls his family into order. The dream of Father God is still there. I mean, it's unbelievable. In, in John chapter 8, later in his life, Jesus is born in a scandal. It stuck with him his whole life because right before his crucifixion, John chapter 8, the Pharisees pulled him aside. And they, they well, it actually was in a public setting. And they said to Jesus in so many words, reminding him of the scandal of his birth. They said, at least we're not bastards like you are. That's what they said, referring to the scandal of his mother's conception. It stayed with him through his days on earth. But he came, as Paul writes in Philippians, in the form of a servant. God became man. Matthew calls him Emmanuel. With us is God. And God came in the person of Jesus to be with us and to ensure that the Father would get his family. He didn't come to a world that deserved him. He didn't even come to a world who wanted him. There was a longing in man's heart, but man couldn't get it right. Most of the people in the world were chasing their lovers, living in spiritual adultery, and Jesus came to some rather adulterous people. There was the woman at the well. There was the, the woman caught in the very act of adultery. It wasn't just them. All the world was unfaithful. They held to their idols, but God showed mercy and love by coming to us in the midst of our brokenness. Had he waited for us to come, folks, there would be no salvation. He came to us. An author by the name of Steve Brown tells the story of a mother in modern life who just got tired of cooking and cleaning and taking care of the kids. And one day, she, in the midst of doing the dishes, she simply walked out, walked out of the home. 
When her husband returned home from work in the evening, he found a note. The note said, I have decided to leave. There's food in the refrigerator. I fed the kids already. That was it. True story. And she walked out. The next day, she called her family. Her husband picked up the phone, and she asked, How are you? And the husband angrily replied, Where the blank are you? She hung up the phone. Almost every week for the next three months, she called home again and again. She began every conversation with, how are you? And time and again, the husband, whose heart began to soften, he would say, we're doing all right, but the kids and I really miss you. We love you. Will you come home? She would hang up the phone at that point. Finally, the husband hired a private detective to look for his wife. This happened in Iowa. Within a week, the private detective traced the mother to a downtown third-rate hotel in a nearby city. The husband hired a babysitter and drove to that city, found the motel, walked up to the room, knocked on the door, and when he opened the door, he embraced her. And they both broke down in tears. And as he was helping her pack to come back home, he asked her the question, why, when I told you over and over again that I loved you and missed you, why didn't you come home? She said, because before, those were only words, but today, you came. You came. And Jesus came to us. And in so doing, he displayed the kind of love that the world longed for. He rubbed elbows with hurting people, people who had been unfaithful to God and to his covenant love. And then he showed us what we're really worth to him by taking our sin upon himself and dying on the cross. And he's raised from the dead. And as 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, he became the first fruits of a great harvest. God can't help but get this in his word over and over again. God wants a big family, and the Father has his family. And that family continues to grow and multiply. And we are in the now of that story. Those of us who know Christ, we are in the now of that story. We know the love of God. We know he loves us. His love has changed us. We still wrestle with our picker sometimes, but he is our Savior, and we have chosen him because he first chose us. That's the kind of love God has for us. That's how much you're worth. Value is determined by what someone will pay for something. The price that you're paying in the holiday season for all those gifts, you're paying what you value them to be. God valued you so much each one of you, that he gave the ultimate price to pay. He value, he, you were as value, valuable as his son. And so the father has a family. That's the now of the story. And we're still living in a fallen world. It's so broken around us. The holiday season seems to accentuate that brokenness over and over again as we see the hearts of people desperately looking for love in the wrong places. 
That's the now, but the not yet is still ahead of us. I want to tell you, God is going to have a huge family. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 19. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And verse 6 of Revelation 19. I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The Bible begins in the mind of God, in the counsel of God, deciding to create man in his image so that he could have a big family. The Bible ends with a multitude that is innumerable, just as the promises said, as the star, uncountable as the stars in the sky or as the sand on the seashore. The Bible ends with that. God gets his family. But we're left here for now, in the now, with the hope of the not yet. And God wants to be there for us to fulfill that longing. We're going to wrap up here and just... A few minutes, but it was about two months ago. I was sitting right there on the front row, and I just began to feel. I, I tend to, when I'm in atmospheres, I kind of get to a feel. I can feel the things that people struggle with, and I felt this powerful guilt and shame that people were carrying. My sense was people were carrying a heaviness on their hearts, and I said, Lord, do I share this now? Do I come up? It was during praise and worship. And, and I just sensed, no, just hold it. And, and I just tucked it away. And this week, it just occurred to me, this is the time to share. And this is what I heard. This is not a, a deep, lengthy, complicated, profound, prophetic word. It's profound to me at the time. But this is what I heard the Lord say to those who are riddled with guilt and shame. The Lord said, tell them, I don't hold it against them. Over and over again, he's kept saying to me, I don't hold it against them. And I want to say it to you today as you're struggling with a broken picker maybe in your life. You've been choosing some loves that are not the love of God. You've been passionate towards some things that really aren't helpful to you at this stage. They're taking the place of God. They're spiritual adulteries. And as we struggle with those things, the Lord is saying to us as his covenant people, I don't hold it against you. Jesus carried all of that trash that we carry. He carried our distracted hearts, our adulterous hearts. He carried our twisted passions. He carried them to the cross. And he said, it's finished. And he doesn't hold it against you. Can we just bow our hearts for a few moments?